0: Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. This week, we are returning to last week's topic of housing. You'll remember we talked to Greg Colburn and took in the view of our housing and the homelessness crisis from 30,000 feet. Greg takes a structural view that is, I think, vital for truly understanding how to tackle the fact that 5% of the U.S. population will experience homelessness in their lifetime. But even Greg emphasized that the macro view is just one component of any strategy to try to tackle the problem of housing and homelessness faced by so many in this, the richest country in the history of the world. This week, we're drilling down into the more micro-aspects of this challenge with a conversation about New York City, where, in short, the rent is too damn high. I'm joined by Leah Goodrich. Leah was appointed to the New York City Planning Commission in 2021 by public advocate Jumani Williams. She's the Managing Attorney for Housing Policy at Mobilization for Justice, where she oversees a team which provides legal representation to tenants in eviction proceedings. Leah also served on the New York City Rent Guidelines Board for three years. Leah, welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. One of the things I didn't get to in that intro there is the number of accolades you've garnered. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) 2019 New York County Lawyers Association Public Service Award, 2018 New York Nonprofit Media 40 Under 40 Rising Star Award, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund Earl Warren Scholarship. So I read that, and I thought this woman could probably do anything she wanted to. (laughs) Why is housing justice what you chose?
1: Well, thank you for the accolades. I appreciate it. You know, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Brooklyn and went to law school at UCLA and was there for three years for law school. And then when I came back, it was my time to be an adult and look for an apartment. And that was when I realized just how unaffordable New York City was. I think if you grew up in Brooklyn, you know and you know, you hear about obviously your parents trying to find housing or trying to buy a house. But when I realized it for myself was when I had to find my own apartment and live on my own. It was tough. And I actually experienced a bit of housing instability. I um, had taken the bar exam and didn't pass the first time. And didn't pass the second time either, actually. And actually, you know, lived with friends, rent-free at some point. I have very good friends that we're still friends today. And uh, it really made me realize what it felt like to experience a bit of housing instability at the same time as having a bad life moment. And that's not the same as, you know, almost going into a shelter, but it was the closest I think I have experienced with dealing with depression and trying to move through life and also trying to keep a roof over my head. And so I really wanted to be a housing attorney, a tenant's rights attorney. This is what we do. You are working and advocating and fighting for New Yorkers and clients who come in every day. And they, too, are trying to deal with an eviction proceeding. And it is tough, mentally tough, especially if you have children and a job that you're trying to hold down. And some of them maybe on public assistance, but the point is they're all dealing with a very stressful situation and trying to navigate it. And the closest I experienced to that, it was tough for me as just a graduating law student. I really bring a lot of passion to the job, and that's why I've been in it for over 10 years. Hmm.
0: Well, in our interview with Greg Colburn, he really emphasized how high-cost cities like New York are places where bad or difficult life moments are really high stakes. A little stumble can have these really devastating consequences, including homelessness. So I really hear you. But can you tell us a bit about what the Planning Commission does?
1: Oh, the Planning Commission. You know, it's any land use decision or most land use decisions. Tell tell us, what is the land use decision? Right. So, (laughs) you know, like let's say if you want to use a piece of land to build housing on that land, you have to ask a body of law, is this okay? And the reason why is someone may be next door and say, well, this affects me. I don't want this large building or this doesn't go with the character of the neighborhood. Or that maybe it might not be a neighbor, but it might be New Yorkers saying the type of housing that's being built has no affordable units in it. So we don't want this. This piece of land shouldn't be used for that. So the Planning Commission basically sees, approves, or denies any decisions that come through it, most of which are housing, that have to do with land use. I'm going to give another example that's not housing. We saw the issue of the borough-based jails. So where to place the borough-based jails that came through the commission? I wasn't on it at the time, but it was a really big deal. The other example that's not housing is the sidewalk use, You know, that's a piece of land that's being used, and a lot of people—I have to say, that was actually one of my first votes, where, you know, it was uh, a—the vote already happened of whether to do it, and then there was a follow-up vote. And uh, I remember at the time, I voted and I said, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, the outdoor restaurants, yeah, we should use it. And then I went online and saw all of these comments. There are people who really hate it, and for valid reasons. So one of the first things I learned as a planning commission is You can't be inside of the bubble of the planning commission. You really have to do your research outside of the information you're given. Mm -hmm. But that's what the planning commission does. And part of being a good commissioner is not being just inside the bubble of the commission and stepping outside of it and talking to people and seeing what they think because everyone doesn't show up to the hearings.
0: Not everyone shows up to the hearings? You mean like the public or the commissioners?
1: No, no. I mean the, the, public. the public. We have right. hearings. They're during the day.
0: Yeah, of course. People are at work. Yeah,
1: people are at work. And, you know, sometimes people just don't have, to, you they know, don't have a time. They don't have yeah. time. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I have a question about land use, because mm-hmm. when you're talking about housing, is there a lot of... Open land that you can use for housing, or I know. <laughs> like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of it is building new housing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the decisions that come before it are existing housing or buildings that they want to build on top of. That's mm-hmm. another one, and sometimes that gets contentious because there's someone living next door who just, you know, it's blocking my sunlight, or it affects people in different ways, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's changing the actual, like something was a commercial use, and then you want to make it a residential use. Mm-hmm. All of that is within the purview of the commission. Got it. Well, the challenges are huge. The median rent in
0: New York City is $4,000. And that is, frankly, <laughs> bananas, right? What is the number one biggest problem that your clients face?
1: Housing affordability. I have to say, it's, you know, when whenever we talk about homelessness. People tend to ascribe all of these things like individual choices. Maybe the person is using drugs. Maybe they had too many kids. These are all of the stereotypical tropes that are often put onto my clients. And the reality is after having done this work for a long time, and I've done this for 10 years, one of the themes that comes through, the first one is, I was working on my job and then I got hurt. Something happened and I became disabled in some form. Or it could just be, you know, I was working on a job for a long time and I got fired and it really shook up my life. But a lot of it is dealing with disability and a new disability and then it's shaking up someone's life and then they're trying to get back on track and sometimes it doesn't happen as fast and it shakes things up and then... They're in my office. Mm-hmm. They're not able to pay the rent, and then they get evicted or they're facing eviction. And then the stress of the eviction is also cumulative as well. The second big theme I see coming through is my parent died, and it really impacted my life, and I was not ready for that. I, You know, either the person became a caretaker, but it tends to really shake people up and shake up a family, especially if it's unexpected and the parent is young like fairly young and then there are mental health challenges that come with that. Hey, this happens when I people come in my office and I say, "Well, why do you owe rent?" They don't say, "Oh, my parent died whatever." But when I really parse through the stories, these are very similar themes. And so, I guess the one big theme is a life event happens that's unexpected and harsh and shakes things up. And because there was already a bit of financial instability with the housing market and not too many people in that person's family, or perhaps no one has owns a home or can really provide for them if something happens, it all falls apart.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, It
1: all falls apart.
0: Yeah. So knowing all these stories, having worked in this space for so long, as a tenant advocate what avenues are available to you for influencing housing policy
1: you know i ended up joining the rent guidelines board and you know someone just sort of floated my name and then it and then we just went from there so i didn't particularly like seek it out but once i got on it i said oh okay this is this is a great way to influence housing policy and just to provide a bit of background the rent guidelines board is a body of 9 members who are nominated and appointed by the mayor of new york city And the guidelines board makes a decision about rent-regulated apartments in New York City and how much landlords can increase the rents by. Mm -hmm. So for both rent-stabilized and rent-controlled, those are under the purview of the rent guidelines board. So if you're a landlord and you want to increase your apartment's rent renewal lease by, say, 10%, the rent guidelines board comes in and says, nope. For all rent-regulated landlords, you can only increase it 2% for one-year renewal or 5% for two-year renewal. Mm -hmm. So landlords don't like that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, But tenant advocates we do. And so this was a great way to influence housing policy because I was appointed by de Blasio and I was one of two tenant representatives. And it was a platform in order to speak to what I'm seeing right. in my office and what I'm seeing as a tenants rights attorney about what's going on in New York City. And I think in a very weird way, that was the first time I learned that at these tables, there's not a lot of me's, if that makes any sense. There's not a lot of tenant voices specifically that work with tenants as their day job. And um, certainly not a lot of legal services attorneys Interesting. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So, New York's rent stabilization laws could be headed to the Supreme Court. Are you worried about that?
1: <laughs> You're laughing. I know. Was, I'm laughing because I was part. I was a, named a defendant in that case where um, when it first came out, because I was on the rent guidelines board. I'm worried. I am worried because I think you know, and it was it was well known that in New York courts that they were not. They were probably going to lose, and they did. Right, the landlords are the plaintiffs. Yeah, there are landlord groups, I should say, are plaintiffs. So they represent landlords in New York City, mm-hmm. small, some big, and uh, they're suing. The Second Circuit just basically denied them, and so now they'll likely ask for certiorari by the Supreme Court, and we're going to wait to see whether the Supreme Court grants hearing the case. And I am a bit worried about that because one of the things that any lawyer will tell you, especially with a big case like this, is that the political climate matters and narratives matter, media narratives matter. And for the past couple of years, what I've seen is a shift, right? A shift in how we talk about housing. And one of the big shifts is there has been this really successful media narrative by developers and landlords that, in fact, developers and landlords are the little guy. They are the victim in all of this, in the housing crisis, you know, the eviction moratorium, that people will go, what about the landlords? You know, they're not getting their rent. What about the small landlords? And then, so then, when who's the tenant in there? The tenant's the villain. <laughs> the tenant <laughs> yes. is really positioned and framed as, like, the villain in all of this. You know, in the context of landlords and tenants, the tenant is seen as like, you're not paying your rent. You're ruining this American dream of a small landlord. In the context of tenants and developers, a tenant is framed as what's called not in my backyard, NIMBY, you know? So in many ways, because they're challenging, they have questions about whether new developments are affordable or not. And so just because they have questions, they're called NIMBY. So I think I'm worried because there is a political climate that I think is open to this, but there's also a media narrative happening where this larger question about tenants who are the true little guy, the true little marginalized people here, being in the way of property owners. And I think that's going to play a large role in this.
0: hmm So as a tenant attorney, what were you most excited about when you were appointed to
1: the New York City Planning Commission? I have to say, you know, people who are listening to this who follow me on Twitter are probably not going to believe this, but I I actually, truly, sincerely thought that this was going to be this sort of, like, quiet role of where I dug my head down, you know, and quietly, like, became this planning nerd and sort of just attended meetings, and that's it. And I was really excited about that, because I was like, oh, this is this is sort of going to be like this, I'm going to be this planning nerd. And, you know, in a nutshell, I envisioned it as something that was very behind-the-scenes and quiet, and I was excited about that aspect. Mm-hmm. Like policy all the time behind, yeah, the, you behind know, the scenes. Yeah, just learning policy and becoming this like policy wonk. I was very <laughs> excited about that. Right. It did not turn it out that out way. way. <laughs> <laughs> it did not. Yeah, yeah, I hear you.
0: We're taking a quick break to shout out a Clever News podcast for kids and their adults. The 10 News. The 10 News team covers everything from Ukraine and the Supreme Court to Minecraft and Pokemon. With hosts Ryan Willard and Pamela Kirkland dropping a new bite-sized podcast for kids and their adults every Wednesday. Awesome guests like Lego Masters judge Amy Corbett, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and the voice of Pokemon's Ash Ketchum have been known to swing by. Make the 10 News part of your family routine to connect, explore, and learn something new. Listen to the 10 news on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, when we were speaking to Greg Colburn last week, we focused on these big systemic questions, and Greg stressed how homelessness is a housing problem and directly correlated with housing costs. What, what are the policy choices that New York City could make? That would make a significant impact on housing costs, because right now it just seems to be perpetually spiraling upwards. And so how, how can we have more affordable housing in New York City?
1: Well, I think the first thing to think about is that we make choices. We as a city we make choices about what we spend our money on. So, you know, we whether you believe in um, and support the defund the police movement, the reality is that that movement really put at the forefront the idea about what are we spending our money on? Where are we allocating our money? And really shed some light on, okay, well, we're putting our money towards, for example, police, what are they doing? I think we need to have the same conversations regarding housing because, what we can be doing is literally funding more affordable units what's happening now is that private developers are being pushed to be at the forefront of building affordable housing i don't have an issue with that i don't think that there should be never be any private developer What I have an issue with is that it has created a culture where they're the hero at the forefront, and so they are the solution. And so what ends up happening is when you have these housing proposals, like the one that we had in Astoria with Innovation Queens or the one that we had in Harlem, the private developer is at the forefront, and then the community predictably says, This is only 25% or 30% of affordable housing units in these thousands of units. This isn't enough. We don't accept this. We want more. And then the private developer predictably says, I don't have the money to spend more of this. This is all I've got. Which, you know, look, let me just take a step back and say, okay, it's their money. Fine. But this is why I say what happens when the city, perhaps in the city, tends to say, well, okay, it's like, okay, this is where you come in to fund more units um, so that we don't have to have these fights. But even taking it further, the fact that uh, what what happens now is, and, and this is the current is what's been happening for some time, is that the city's aware, the city wants the private developers to do most of the funding. And so the way the city pipes in and says, okay, well, we're going to pipe in and knock down all of these rules and processes um, so that you can build more and faster. So, you know, this is where all these terms come in, like NIMBY. We're going to knock out all these things. So this is what our contribution is going to be. It won't necessarily be more money, but it'll be the administrative part. I think we need to be funding more. Mm -hmm. I think Does that come to the
0: commission, to the planning commission, or who decides to spend more? So if if I were a developer and I say,
1: I want, so the mayor has budget for this? Yeah. I mean, the city gets to make the decision about how much money it will allocate towards housing. Mm -hmm. And if we wanted to build units that were 100% affordable housing, we could. If we wanted to build a a whole bunch of those, we could. And we wouldn't have as many fights that we've had where you have communities saying, and their main beef isn't, I don't want housing. Their main beef is the housing you're building doesn't have enough affordable units, right? So just to take a step back, the private developer comes in. You have them being by the city, positioned to be the hero. Like, yes, you're spending your own money. And then, of course, they predict, well, I don't have more money to spend. And then the city is like, well, I don't, you know, we're not putting in any more money. So I guess it's a fight. And so I guess what I'm explaining is it's become a culture, right? So now this is part of what's driving, right? The privatization of housing, this is part of what's driving a lot of the contention and a lot of the fights because the way this would look different is if the city were to fund more affordable units so that a lot more... Of the let's say a housing proposal has a thousand apartments instead of it being like two hundred of those being affordable, it would be eighty percent affordable. It would be a hundred percent affordable, and the city would make up the difference. Mm-hmm. I think what's driving a lot of the contention in these fights is a lack of funding. But the point is, this I think is 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 a big issue for me. Yeah, you know, this yeah. is this drives it a lot.
0: Right. Well, it also drives gentrification, right? basically pushes people out their, of their communities and neighborhoods. So I'd, I'd love to hear about your experiences working with communities affected by gentrification.
1: I see this all the time in my daily work as a tenant's rights attorney, and I experienced it myself. I was born in Brooklyn. I've sort of like never left. No, oh, that's not true. I lived for a time in the Bronx and, um, and Manhattan, and I was like, now I got to go back to Brooklyn. <laughs> but, you know, just to provide A little bit of background for folks. Gentrification is a process where higher-income residents move in to an area, and then eventually displacement happens. The second part of after gentrification, displacement happens where the existing residents are pushed out, and that tends to happen by secondary displacement. There are studies that show that when wealthier and particularly whiter residents move in, the cops are called more. There are all types of push-outs. There's all types of harassment. But the cops being called and there being regulation and the change of a culture of a neighborhood is a big key part. More expensive restaurants obviously take root, and then the neighborhood becomes more expensive overall. And if you're a renter, as opposed to a homeowner, if you're going to get pushed out, then you don't Actually, benefit in the end result. So, I've seen this play out with my clients where they have been living in their rent stabilized apartment for a long time, for many years, and the neighborhood changes. And then the landlord's like, Oh, you're paying $900 for a studio, and everyone else is paying $2,000, you know, um, in this area. Like, and then they start harassing them mm-hmm. to get out. Any little thing, you know, two weeks late with their rent, a month late, they're ready to start a housing case. Little things that they might have let slide before are not overlooked now. And so pressure happens and this is how neighborhoods change. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, how has New York City's tenant right to counsel law that was passed 5 years ago? How has that affected the landscape for Renters and landlords.
1: So it is a five-year anniversary. I mean, technically, we're now going into the sixth year. And I remember when it, this was just passed, and I had been practicing for a number of years. And the big thing at the time was, you know, by this is by the inside world of tenants' rights attorneys. Yeah. We were like, oh my god, we don't want. <laughs> No, we're like yeah, <laughs> we don't want wait. You know, like of course it helps the clients, but I think at the time we were so used to selecting our cases that we sort of looked at it like, oh my god, we're not going to have any control. It was a control thing. We're not going to have any control over our cases. It's already a very stressful job, and so basically every single case we're going to have to take, and this is going to, how are we going to handle this? Right, um, so much. But what ended up happening, obviously, is with that funding, it was funding more attorneys because Mm -hmm. that was the main concern, right? You know, that you would not have enough, yeah, not have enough attorneys to, to do the work. You know, just to provide some background, being a tenants' rights attorney to me is like the equivalent of being an ER doctor and doing the triage. Like, you're literally seeing people come in and they're all facing eviction, and everything is an emergency, because one minute you might miss one thing and then they get evicted, and, you know, you're a lawyer and you have to, you know, follow a whole process. We have legal rules. So it's all extremely traumatic, even for the attorney. You know, and it, it, it's, it's a lot of secondary trauma for the attorneys. I think the right to counsel changed the game by providing more attorneys, and so culturally what happened is... People were ready to play ball a lot more. Before the right to counsel, it was very common to settle and not go to trial. I remember when I had first started, only a few people in the office that I was in had gone to trial. Because it was like, why aren't you just settling? Like, this is sort of the way the train moves. You, You get these cases out and then move on. Then the right to counsel happened. More attorneys came in. And with more attorneys, a field, even on the tenant side, that had been majority white, became a lot more racially diverse, a younger crowd, and some of the stuff that went on in housing court, like being disrespected, there was a lot of racism and misogyny and transphobia and all of that in housing court. People weren't taking it anymore. And so then part of that culture filtered over into the cases where we're like, you know what, you want to go to trial? Let's go to trial. Let's go to trial. Let's take this to trial. And so there's a certain level of boldness that started happening in the actual substantive part of the law, as well as the culture part of how housing court operated. And uh, it shifted, you know?
0: Yeah. So the COVID pandemic eviction moratorium ended a little over a year ago. Did we learn anything from that experience?
1: Having the eviction moratorium was helpful, obviously. When the (laughs) eviction moratorium happened, the sort of narrative of like, this is really impacting small landlords and it was, right? Yes. But small landlords are often used as a face of New York City landlords and that's I have a problem with this because they're not the majority of New York City landlords. And um when these fights come up like good cause eviction, like the eviction moratorium, they are the face, but what happens is this housing market is so large mm-hmm. that We really do need to think about the fact that there are millions of people who, if we had during the pandemic, no eviction moratorium, and people were just getting evicted left and right or moving around left and right, this would have been such a deep health crisis. And I don't think we would have gotten out of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think we would have gotten out of that. I mean, there were larger concerns at play there. Right. Well, let's talk about the
0: big ideas here, because you're working towards housing justice. What is that in your mind?
1: I mean, housing justice for me is where people aren't being displaced, where people have a place to live and retire. You know, I don't know a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm really going to stay here and retire in New York City. That's changed. I'm one of the last people in my family who, I, you know, as I said, I grew up in New York. I was born here. My mother came here from Barbados when she was 11. And my father, he's black american. He he's been here and his family's been here. He grew up in um Marcy houses um in NYCHA and I'm one of the last people here. Mm-hmm. One of the last people in my family. Everyone has moved down south for housing to be able to buy housing. And the main thing that's said is I can't afford to retire here. I would love to stay here, but I can't afford it. So housing justice for me looks like people who have built these communities, who have stayed in them, who have made them vibrant, are able to remain and retire here. Right, right.
0: So as an everyday New Yorker, what could we be doing to advance the cause of
1: housing justice? I think one big thing is letting your local and big politicians know one thing that's effective that landlord groups do is they they are very at the table. So they make their issues and concerns very well known. And I think that if more New Yorkers really expressed that this is my number one issue to their local city council member, to their local assembly member, to the mayor, to the speaker, this is my do or die issue. And so... If you don't advocate for more affordable housing, I don't want to vote for you. This is like the vote or not issue for me. I th- I think more New Yorkers can do that. You know, I see all of the other issues like schools and so forth. And, you know, Quinnipiac, they recently did a poll and actually a crime was the number one concern. And then affordable housing was the second. Mm-hmm. But in terms of really letting elected officials know Because I think that it's just commonplace where when these developments come through, the housing developments, even if people in that community are reticent or hesitant about the lack of of affordable housing units, they'll still push it through. Mm -hmm. And I think that more people saying, this is really a do or die issue for me, will change that. The other thing is join the community boards if you have time. I think that that's really helpful to have a voice. The community boards, I should note, actually vote on the housing proposals before it gets to the planning commission. So it's um it it's a great voice to have.
0: Two really fantastic things
1: and very doable
0: for a lot of New Yorkers. Very yeah. doable. Yeah. So last question: mm-hmm. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful?
1: I. I'm hopeful by tenant unions and the voices that have advocated for tenants' rights and really had a huge movement. I'm a tenants' rights attorney. I'm what's considered a legal services attorney. And that's actually one small dot of the whole tenant movement. It's really led by organizers. And I am so hopeful by how much work they've done. I mean, honestly, they run New York City. They are the reason why we had right to counsel. It's not because lawyers fought for it in court. It's because people organized for it. They're the reason why we have the HSTPA, why we have the new rent laws. I mean, all of these things have come about because of tenant organizing. And I think if you're not in the tenant world, you may not hear about it. But let me just say that it's big. It's really big. Throngs of people get on buses and go up to Albany and shout and, you know, talk to the the governor and the assembly members and pack the the courts and, you know, the state floors. And it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people out there fighting for New Yorkers. And I want them to know that.
0: Mm, yeah, that's really hopeful. I'm happy to hear that people get on buses and go to Albany. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, if and shout. And, <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yes, this is great <laughs> that people are active. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure
1: to have you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: You're welcome. Leah Goodrich is appointed to the New York City Planning Commission by public advocate Jamani Williams, and she's the managing attorney for housing policy at Mobilization for Justice. Next week on Future Hindsight, we're joined by Daniel Squadron, a former New York State Senator and co founder and executive director of the States Project. We talk about what it takes to win state legislatures and why it's so important. I need to stay knowledgeable, people say, but I'm not going to fix things. Well, in state legislatures, the results of 2022 show you can fix things. That's next time on Future Hindsight. We're also active on Twitter and would love to engage with you all there. You can follow me at Mila Atmos, that's one word, M I L A A T M O S, or follow the pod at F U T U R underscore hindsight. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged.